the Slaughter and May podcast. Hello and welcome to the Slaughter and May podcast. I'm Selmin Hackey, a lawyer in the Financial Regulation Group, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Charles Randall, who will be well known to many of our listeners, having been a member of the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Committee, and then the chair of the Financial Conduct Authority and of the Payment Systems Regulator. Charles has recently rejoined Slaughter and May as a senior consultant. I'm also joined by Jan Putnis, head of our Financial Regulation Group and co-head of our Financial Institutions Group. Nick Bonsall, a partner in our financial regulation group, and Dr. Sabine Dietrich, our head of EU financial regulation. Welcome, everyone. We're recording this podcast at what is a very interesting time in financial regulation, I'm sure you'll agree. In looking at the UK in particular, the post-crisis system has really been tested in the last nine months or so, with a questionable mini-budget leading to severe turbulence in the market for UK government debt and that in turn leading to a liquidity and price spiral in liability-driven pension investing, requiring a Bank of England intervention. And with rising interest rates, then also leading to some short, sharp turbulence in the banking sector. We've also had a new Conservative government, which has only a relatively short time left before the next election to make its mark. And hanging over all of this is the continuing topic of whether the UK can thrive outside the EU and how its relationship with the EU will develop. So our guests today are expertly placed to help us navigate all this. Charles, can I turn to you first? Perhaps the place to begin is looking at how the post-crisis system has held up. Well, thanks very much, Simon. And I'm obviously delighted to be back at Slaughter and May, but I come with newfound respect for the difficult job that regulators do. We saw SVB UK in this uh, US regional bank crisis put through a sale process. But actually, the interesting thing was it was a largely isolated case and other UK banks remained stable through the turbulence. And I think this would suggest that the post-crisis system for regulating banks in the UK has worked fairly well. In particular, um, in the 2019 uh, stress test, the Bank of England tested the banking sector for a significant rise in interest rates, and it ensured that capital and liquidity was increased to deal with that. Um, I was a member of the uh, Prudential Regulation Committee in 2018 when we decided that test should be done. Uh, the Bank of England's ongoing work with larger banks on resolvability assessment has also helped to highlight and then to address uh, areas of weakness in banks' resolution planning throughout this period. The Bank of England had also set a clear policy uh, re for requiring significant UK branches like SVB UK to be incorporated as subsidiaries with their own ring fence capital and liquidity, and that ensured that SVB UK could be transferred to HSBC without too much complication from the US bank resolution process. So, so far, so good, but even uh, though the UK banking system held up pretty well compared to the US regional banks, what we've seen over there means that UK policymakers will now be focusing uh, very much on the way that UK deposit insurance works. I think on that, uh, the question of how quickly it pays out will be paramount because the delay in paying out the tech firms who had deposits with SVB UK caused a very significant difficulty. The question of how 
the mechanics work and whether the compensation scheme should provide uh, capital to keep uh, the bank stable while uh, the Bank of England deals with the liquidity or whether the FSCS should continue in its present role, which generally is to pay out the deposits. And of, of course, if you can shore up the capital, that's a much smaller amount than the outflow of deposits that you could be looking at. So I think that's something that's been very much trailed in the press in, the, in, in recent days, and I think we'll see, uh, see more of that. There's also um, a you know, big issue for banks and bank profitability because the more liquidity that banks are required to hold, uh, the more the pressure on their margins. Obviously, banks effectively have two types of assets. They have those that earn them profits, uh, risk assets, and then they have safe liquidity assets. And the more liquidity assets they have, the lower their net interest margin. So that's going to be a really important area for banks going forward. Uh, you mentioned the liability-driven uh, pension investing squeeze. That was a different challenge. And there was quite a fair bit of finger-pointing between regulators and the government over that. But if we just leave that aside, what the episode shows, I think, is that the next frontier of financial supervision is going to be uh, the non-bank sector, non-bank financial institutions, where regulators currently don't have a very clear line of sight into connectedness and the risks arising from that. Charles has spoken a bit about what UK policymakers might be looking at going forwards. Jan, if I could turn to you to talk to us a bit about the sorts of issues we can expect regulators to be focusing on from a financial stability perspective. Yes, thanks, Thelman. I mean, as Charles said, what happened earlier this year has not, or at least has not yet, turned into a wider crisis. But that doesn't mean there aren't quite a few things for regulators to think about and lessons to learn coming out of the the different features of what we've seen over the last few months. Um, I think that the first one that comes to my mind is this concept of systemic importance. And although there have always been a range of factors applied by regulators to work out whether a bank is systemically important or not, I think the experience of the last few months really underlines the fact that further thinking might be needed by resolution authorities in the UK and the US, and I think in the Eurozone as well, about the wide range of factors other than sheer size that can influence the systemic importance of a bank. For example, its connectivity, whether it serves a particularly important part of the economy, as SVB does um, in the UK and did in the US. And, and also some further thinking which is going on as we speak about the types of market development that can lead to a crisis of confidence of the type that we saw in some of the US regional banks and, of course, at Credit Suisse as well. And it's not just about failing banks either. Fundamentally, this crisis in, the, in, in US regional banking was about needing to recognize that even a successful bank or a bank that is successful on paper can still fail if it suffers a crisis of confidence, often for reasons that are completely beyond its control, and it can snowball out of control into a run. On other things, um, I think there will be a greater focus on stress testing the interactions between different actors in the financial system. So, for example, in the liability-driven pensions episode, um, that wasn't just about insurers and uh, pension schemes. It also engaged interest rate swap counterparties, gilt market participants, as well as the pension schemes and insurers who were dealing with each other. And understanding how those actors would interact in a crisis and factoring that in 
to a slightly broader and more textured series of stress tests might be something that comes out of this episode as well. And on the subject of failure or planning for failure, um, the likely extension of more formal uh, recovery and resolution planning requirements to insurers and a stronger toolkit of resolution powers for the Bank of England and resolution authorities in the Eurozone in that sector, um, I think may well herald greater scrutiny of current and planned business structures in that sector, um, affecting M&A transactions as well when people are looking at how they put structures together. So broadly, as Charles said, the system has held up reasonably well, but plenty of things to think about for the future. And Nick, your thoughts? One of the interesting points that comes out of this that I'd just comment on for a second is that, you know, as we as we watched the regulatory framework develop post-crisis, we started talking about shadow banking. We, we started talking about non-bank financial institutions and the likelihood of increased regulation in the sector. And it didn't emerge. Largely because there wasn't a that there wasn't a governmental framework that provided for the regulation of a large part of that you know that the the the, the unregulated part of the uh, of the non-bank financial institution sector. What I think will be interesting coming out of the LDI um, episode last year um, is and the interconnectedness that we've been talking about um, here is whether we start to see governmental policy changing significantly to bring more of those areas of the the shadow banking system within the scope of regulators and enabling greater control over those um, systemic connectedness aspects. Nick, I think that's that's absolutely right. But there are two points that come out of that. The first is that uh, as we get into that debate about how should non-bank finance be regulated, Uh, we come up against the question of the existing regulatory architecture and whether it's fit for purpose. And clearly the Bank of England Financial Policy Committee has a broad remit across the financial system as a whole. But uh, the vast majority of the firms that that fall into this non-bank financial institution sector are FCA authorised firms. And so the connectedness between the Bank of England and the FCA in relation to non-bank financial institutions, I think... um, will come under scrutiny uh, as as we go forward on that. The second point is we have to remember that when this issue came up after the global financial crisis, there was very strong pushback from uh, various bits of industry, in particular the asset managers, to say they weren't systemic. And I think we may see that that debate ignites again in a big way. Yeah, I think um, the... um risks that arise from the non-banking financial institution sector had actually been um, a focus area of um, EU authorities also for quite a while. Um, And um, while size was not necessarily the important factor in this area, um, activity-based risk assessment was um, over the last years. Um, and the way EU authorities are approaching this now is um, is probably going in a similar direction. Um, there's also the acknowledgement that um, you actually need to look um, not in a siloed way in the different parts of financial sector when assessing risks and that maybe for the next commission and the next um, European Parliament next year, um, it would be a task really to look into risk in a more holistic way, how interaction takes place between the different parts of the financial sector. Let's turn to the rethinking of the UK rulebook post-Brexit. 
The government is moving forward on two fronts. Firstly, there's a piece of legislation, the Financial Services and Markets Bill, which is headed for the statute book during the summer. And secondly, there are a number of reviews of regulation underway as part of the so-called Edinburgh reforms outlined late last year, which heralded an ambition to build a smarter financial services framework. Another potentially significant area is the senior managers and certification regime, which is being reviewed, as well as the big change in conduct regulation, the FCA's introduction of the new consumer duty next month. And we'll be sure to turn to those topics in a future podcast. So clearly there's a lot still being thought over and plenty of proposals and developments for listeners to be keeping in touch with. Charles, um, perhaps you can kick us off here by giving us a bit of context as to what we can expect from the bill in terms of the sorts of changes we're likely to see in practice. Thanks, Simon. Well, yes, most of what's in the bill is mechanical and an inevitable result of uh, leaving the European Union. The, the, the key task of the bill is to change the framework for making financial regulations uh, now that we're no longer uh, making those regulations through the EU process. Um, so there's an awful lot in the bill that's relatively uncontentious. In terms of significant changes, one of the, one of the uh, significant changes is that the bill will give financial regulators a secondary objective to facilitate the international competitiveness and growth of the UK economy. This sits behind, in terms of priorities, sits behind the regulators' existing safety and soundness and consumer protection objectives. And that wasn't what um, quite a lot of the industry wanted. I think the industry, uh, particularly the insurance sector, wanted uh, the regulators to have a primary objective to promote uh, international competitiveness and growth. And so at the moment, we're seeing as the bill passes through Parliament uh, efforts to uh, boost the secondary objective to give it more prominence, including through imposing... Uh, performance measures on the regulators in relation to uh, their performance of the secondary objective. Uh, and there are also continuing efforts to introduce a further layer of oversight of the financial regulators, um, which uh, I, I personally think are unlikely to uh, reach the statute book, but uh, the, the, the discussion goes on. But it's important to realize that the bill... Uh, will constitute a fundamental break with the EU legislative style uh, that we had previously. And there will be a significant transfer of power to the regulators and therefore regulatory accountability has never been more important. This question of how the regulators should be held accountable has attracted um, a degree of interest in the parliamentary debates that have accompanied the scrutiny of the bill. Jan, how do you see this question being resolved? I don't actually think it will be resolved in the short term. I think we'll just have to see how it goes and further mechanisms mechanisms may, meet, may need to be layered onto what we already have to ensure that there's better accountability for the regulators. There's no doubt that there's a huge power grab that's gone on. I mean, not on account of the regulators, but just on account of Brexit and the fact that the regulators domestically are now going to inherit so much of the competences that were previously held at EU level. Um, I'd be disappointed, though, if the accountability debate um, crowded out what I think is at least as big an issue, which is whether our regulators have the right quantity and quality of resources. It's actually quite hard to hold a regulator to account if it doesn't have enough resources. 
And we need to be extremely careful that the resources that are available to our regulators to do their job don't decline to the point where they always have an excuse that they don't have the resources to do what, they, what they're required to do when, it, when they're held up as having failed in the future in front of whatever accountability mechanisms we put in place. But this is where I think the, um, the amendments to the regime are so interesting. So on the one hand, we have this idea that um, the needs to, you know, that the regulators should be promoting the international competitiveness of our system. Now, I interpret that as meaning there should be some reduction in the bureaucratic element of regulation, and actually there should be some re- reduction in aspects of regulation that exists in our framework. On the other hand, we're saying that regulators have to be accountable or, or have greater accountability as they start to deviate. And I suppose, you know, I, what will be really interesting to see over the next couple of years is how regulators toe that very fine balance if we are to reduce some of the level of regulation in the country you know what happens when you know if 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 and when that causes there to be some issue in the uh, in the market and for the regulators to be held accountable will they feel empowered to in, increase the competitiveness of our of, of our regulatory framework of the market for financial services that that, that to me is the big question I agree with that, Nick. I, I think the competition objective also raises some very interesting questions about what sort of businesses we're going to be prepared to host in the UK in the future. So where we see another financial centre doing particularly well in a specific sector of the economy, um, crypto comes to mind, of course, uh, there will be an interesting policy question as to whether we're prepared to loosen or change our approach to encourage similar developments here. And quite how those decisions are going to be made um, is yet to be seen. How do we decide, for example, whether we want to become a more successful magnet for crypto crypto firms in the UK, or indeed to become a a centre of a greater centre of asset management? Another live debate that's going on within the FCA at the moment. I mean, I would. Um, uh, I'm not going to get drawn into the question of crypto because that requires a podcast uh, of its of its own. But I do think the point you make about resourcing is an interesting one because my view is that if regulators are inadequately resourced, they're more likely to reach for rule changes as the means of achieving their objectives and therefore they end up producing more regulation because they haven't got the bodies on the grounds to enforce the existing regulation and therefore they're continually imposing requirements on firms to do things through rules. Um, and therefore, I think one of the one of the key ways that regulators can reduce the volume of the rule book is by focusing on performance and by focusing on supervision and enforcement. Uh, and if they do that well, uh, broadly speaking, there's usually enough in the rule book to let them achieve their objectives. Uh, where you find them reaching for the rule book or changes to the rule book is where they feel they don't have the bodies on the ground. Uh, to do that sort of intensive supervision and enforcement activity. So I think there's a, there's a really important balance to be struck about uh, the, the, re- the regulatory style. Is it one that focuses on performance or is it one that focuses on rulemaking? Uh, thanks, Charles. I agree with all of that. But I think all of this underlines the need for firms to think even more carefully about how they engage with their regulators. Uh, some firms are obviously better resourced internally um, to deal with regulators and others, but you must really think about the quality and quantity of your interactions with regulators to ensure that you get early warning of what they're thinking. The other important factor there to take into account is the need to tell the regulator about the cost and the burden that rule changes will 
have on your business if you're regulated. Um, Cost-benefit analyses are quite difficult for a regulator to do without adequate input from the industry. So the more uh, granular information you can provide, uh, uh, or incredible estimates you can provide about the cost of uh, potential rule changes, uh, the, the better I think the result of the consultation might be on that front. We've spoken about the bill. There's also the package of around 30 measures announced in December which are intended to unlock investment and turbocharge growth and free the UK from, and I quote, burdensome EU regulation. What are these reforms likely to mean in practice, do we think? Yeah, uh, it's a great question because until the trust quarting episode, I think government was thinking about announcing something called Big Bang 2.0. But I think after that episode, there was a view that... um, Big bangs were not necessarily always a good thing. And uh, the Edinburgh reforms have been positioned much more as incremental change. And actually quite a few things in the list of reforms are things that were underway already. So there's a lot of recycling of additional policy activity. Um, Coming on top of uh, the trust quarting episode, of course, we have the turbulence uh, in the uh, banking sector Uh, in the US and the SVB UK episode. And I think that's really changed the dialogue significantly because um, regulators, obviously, they don't think that the turbulence is good good news, but it it has changed the dialogue in their favor. So to pick one example, the implementation of Basel 3.1, where there was quite a strong uh, pushback building politically against some of the improvements of resilience and capital in the banking sector. I think that pushback is uh, largely evaporating now as people recognize we really do need a a well-capitalized and liquid banking sector. There's quite a lot in the Edinburgh reforms about reforms to capital markets, and that's a really critical topic, but it's, I think, of such a significance that we'll do a separate podcast episode on on that. Similarly, when you look at the senior managers and certification regime review, the tenor of the documents coming out of both government and the regulators suggests that the regime is going to be largely left in place and the focus will be on incremental improvement and the reduction of bottlenecks. And the same is true of uh, the review of the ring fencing regime, which Uh, again, is very much in the incremental improvement area. Now, there's nothing wrong with incremental improvement. Uh, I think the British Cycling had a director of uh, marginal improvement, uh, which uh, produced great results for the UK. Um, But what we're not seeing is a big bang. Many of the proposals we've been discussing today are very much about Britain's place outside the EU and how it is looking to remodel its regulatory landscape post-Brexit. And of course, regulatory dialogue between the EU and the UK is now set to resume officially with the adoption by the European Commission of a draft MOU that establishes a framework for structured regulatory cooperation between the parties in financial services. That MOU is now subject to final political endorsement by the Council of the EU. With that in mind, Sabina, can I turn to you um, to ask you, how do you envisage the UK-EU relationship to evolve going forward? 
Yeah, the adoption um, of the Financial Services Dialogue MOU by the European Commission is, is actually really good news, um, as it is a sign for normalization in the general dialogue um, between the UK and the EU. Um, and it will be, as it is between the EU and the US, it will be an important periodic tool to touch base, really, um, on regulatory topics, um, particularly important in times of market turmoil, for example. Um, however, of course, it's important to understand as well that the MOU um, only provides a framework for this um, dialogue for future discussion. Um, it doesn't have any concrete regulatory proposals um, that will be decided there. It doesn't have any decision power either. Um, so nothing around equivalence will be decided there. So it just fosters basically the dialogue, which is, however, important. Um, there are three other important elements um, to watch out for in the relationship between the UK and the EU. Um, and so the first one is, you know, will there be a competition really between the two blocks and which direction is it going to be? And we touched a little bit on this um, from a you know, UK perspective. Um, but the question always was from an EU perspective also, is there a race to the bottom um, in terms of competitions or lowering the standards? Um, so far, we do not see that. Um, the deviations that we see are incremental changes, usually really still timed on when EU regulation had a revision scheduled, um, actually. So they go in parallel. Um, you find slightly different approaches to similar topics. And then obviously you have the big new topics like ESG and crypto, where the approaches differ um, between the two blocks. Um, but still, you know, there's a lot of communalities um, between the UK and the EU. Um, the other big question still that's uh, a heritage really like from the Brexit timing is, will EU regulators um, uphold and increase further supervisory action to require more substance in the EU? Um, and um, so far, it's definitely what we see and what we hear um, that comes from banks supervised by the ECB, for example. So substance in the EU uh, by, you know, what some call incoming banks into the EU is, is still is still a major topic. Um, and the other really practical um, element is um, how will the FCA and the PRA, how will they interact actually going forward, um, you know, with um, EU regulators, given that in the past, as being part of the EU, um, the dialogue was on a daily basis, was very easy, was really on, on every topic, was just cooperation, basically. Um, now the FCA and PRA are facing 27 regulators plus the EU regulators. So the kind of framework really on that side between regulators on supervisory actions as well, is just getting more complicated um, with being not part of, um, of the EU any longer. Um, and a little bit attached to that is, is a question that I um, start hearing again, and it's, it's about how transfer of powers to EU authorities, so the EU supervisory authorities, um, could take place um, over the next time. So is that something that centralized supervisory power to the ESAs, to ESMA, EBA, Europa, will that will that gain traction? Will will that develop further? 
And it might be something actually that um, can have some advantages in certain areas um, as it simplifies also, you know, from a third country perspective, it simplifies the interaction with the block. Thank you. That's been a really fascinating discussion. And um, Charles, perhaps I could turn to you with a parting question. Could you wrap up today's podcast? What should listeners be taking away from what's been discussed today? I think what people should take away from the podcast is that the changes that we've discussed are in many cases necessary, but not in many cases fundamental. And I think that's welcome uh, to industry because change can be very costly and disruptive. It's also welcome to regulators. Um, what is interesting, however, is that the big issues that are out there for industry are, to my mind, not really about regulation as such. They're about a series of uh, technical technology and geopolitical changes that are coming our way. Obviously, regulation will need to respond. But when we think about technology change, about generative AI, when we think about geopolitical change uh, and the future relations between Western nations and China in particular, when we think about uh, crypto and central bank digital currencies, yes, of course, these will lead to regulatory consequences and they'll require regulatory change, but they're huge topics uh, that go far beyond um, the impact of regulation. The same is true of the capital markets question what's happening to uh, our capital markets and investments in the UK economy. Regulators can respond to these things, but they can't control them. And I think all of those topics that I've mentioned are worthy of podcasts in their own right in uh, the weeks and months to come. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you to Charles, Jan, Nick and Sabina for their thoughts and to all of you for listening. For more information on this topic, or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.